now. Okay, let's get this web conference underway. We'll start with a karakia. Unuhia te pō te pō whiri marama. Unuhia te ao te ao. Tātai ki runga, tātai ki raro. Hamie, well, kia ora koutou. Welcome along to our Matariki and Navigation Field Trip, which is supported by Land Information New Zealand, or LINS. And this is our expert, Matt, today. Kia ora, kia ora koutou. Mm. Want to be on the... I used to say that when I was a little kid and my principal would say, Morena, Mr. Matt. <laughs> great to have you along, Matt, and great to be here at Te Tarewaka Opuneke, which is in Wellington. And it's a bit of a cloudy day today. Uh, we're expecting a few showers, uh, but it's good enough to hopefully get out on our waka. And, Fingers crossed. And find out some more about how to navigate in the manner that Māori did way back when they came to Aotearoa. So, so the tradition, the knowledge has been passed down through generations and we're hoping to find out a bit more about that today because they were extremely good navigators to find their way across the Pacific and you're going to learn more about that during the field trip. So it's great to have so many schools join us today um, from all over Aotearoa um, and we've got our speaking schools, a big welcome to Arahoi School and Ponsonby Primary School this morning. Great to have you with us. and. I want to introduce you to some friends. Oh, I've just changed layouts on my screen there. I think somebody's changed it for us. But anyway, we've got Kiri Kiriru. And Kiri is from St Albans School. We have got Tidy Kiwi from Morrinsville School. And we have got um, Maya. Great name from Pukekohe School, and of course, another Maya, Kia, the Learns Ambassador. It's a popular name for ambassadors. Um, who else have we got here? We have got, oh, I'm shifting my laptop so I can find them. We've got Tiaki, the Mopok, the Ruru, and our good old. Border Holly. <laughs> and Border Holly is from Nightstream School. So fantastic to have so many ambassadors with us this morning as well. So they've had a great time traveling from Dunedin to Wellington yesterday and looking forward to finding out more about navigation on this field trip. So without further ado, we'll get underway with our questions and we'll start with Arahoi School. Question number one, please. If the navigators had to navigate all the time, how could they survive with not sleeping sleeping at all? Oh, more in my Arohoi school and more in a kaute kato e fakarungo mai nei. Just a quick introduction called Matt Aho. Um, as Shelley said, my name's Matt. Um, I'm from Te Wharuaka Pōneke in Wellington and we work quite closely with our navigators and our kaihoi, our paddlers, on various kinds of waka, waka ama, waka haurua, waka taua and waka tangata. So a big range of waka, different waka. 
Um, Arohoi, to your question, if navigators had to uh, navigate all the time, how would they uh, survive without sleeping? Well, that's a really important question. We know that when you're traveling out in the ocean, it's quite fatiguing, it's quite draining, and it's a really uh, physically draining experience. And so what we know is that they work in shifts, usually of three shifts, and they work um, three of them. One of them will be uh, the watch crew looking after the ship. One of them will be resting but still awake. And then the third crew will be um, during, uh, having some downtime, having some sleep time. And so they'll rotate roughly every four hours, um, ensuring that there's fresh legs on the boat um, and ensuring that everybody does get the chance to relax. But we do know, I have heard stories of some um, people undergoing tests, uh, is probably one way to call them, some really big tests to become master navigators. And so I've heard of a story of a guy navigating for 18 hours, 18 really long hours to ensure that um, he could navigate properly as a master navigator and could handle a storm. So that was quite a long period of time, 18 hours. Great mm. question though. Mm, indeed, and really fascinating to think about all the roles that people would have to have and that you'd have to be able to undertake different roles yeah, to yeah. support each other and the crew. Mm. Kia ora, Matt. And now question number one from Ponsonby Primary School, please. <sighs> Trying to find you on the screen again. <laughs> so many people. Will the Matariki stars go away? That's a really good question. So when we look at the stars, what we notice, if you take the chance to look at uh, the night sky, um, you'll notice every now and then it looks a little bit different. So from now, let's say until December, you'll notice it kind of, the same stars are sort of there, but they look at different, they seem to be at different angles. And that's because even though there are 24 hours in a day, we know that there are actually 23 hours and 56 minutes. And what happens is when the Earth is rotating around the sun, every now and then it'll start, because it's not a full 24 hours, it'll slightly change its axis of rotation, it's called. And so what will happen is the night sky that we see in January will be slightly different to the one that we see at this time um, in June, July. So what happens is Matsuriki will always be there. It doesn't quite go away, um, but it does escape our field of vision is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, kia ora, um, Ponsonby Primary School. <laughs> and you're going to see Matariki um, in the planetarium at Space Place later on today. Cool. And you'll be able to see what it looks like. And it's not due to rise again until I think it's the 25th of June this year. Mm -hmm. But different dates each year. And you can find out a little bit more about that by doing a bit of research or having a look on the LUNS website and um, finding out, out about the Mari, Maramataka, the the lunar calendar, which matches up with, with uh, that rise of Matariki and the Māori New Year. Fantastic question, thank you. And now we'll move to question number two from Arahoi School, please. When people were sailing in the ocean, how could they locate land? Mm, good That's question. an awesome question. I really like this one because when you think about it, the Pacific Ocean is one of the largest oceans in the world. 
And effectively, there's a saying, lots of us would have heard this before, you're trying to find a needle in a haystack. That's how big a Pacific Island is, tiny like that big. And then the ocean itself is huge. And so trying to find land in such a vast, expansive ocean is a massive challenge. What we know is that there are two kinds of journeys. There are journeys to places that we know of already. So let's say we want to travel from Samoa to Rarotonga. We know where Samoa is and we know where Rarotonga is. And all we have to do is find, uh, remember the pathway there. So it's similar to going from you know, the Farewaka to my house. I know where my house is and I know where my work is. I can navigate that path relatively easily um, and things that they use to indicate where uh, to remember that path are things like the stars so there are different star names and they can tell the different setting points of the stars um, some of us might have seen the movie Moana where uh, Maui and Moana are using their hand to measure the distance between the stars and the horizon That's that helps um, telling us yeah like that I can see some of you guys doing it that's kind of funny <laughs> um, yeah what that will help you tell is um how far away the stars are from the horizon and relatively how accurate um, your navigation points are going to be. Other ways that they can tell are by the position of the sun. So instead of uh, when it comes to sunrise and sunset, um, the stars, you can't see them anymore. And so what you use for the first part is the sun and how far um, the sun rises from certain parts and then sets in other parts. Um, during the day, uh, they primarily used things like winds and the swell. So Without um, obstacles to change the direction of waves, waves will travel in a relatively consistent direction. So if the swell is always going in a particular way and you know that that swell takes you to Samoa, or in this instance the road takes me home, um, it'll take you to where you're going, roughly speaking. Um, but then for journeys where you don't know where you're going, so when you're going out to explore new places, that's a really important question. And there are some really big telltale signs. Um, so what we know is that the Polynesian, the ancestors of many Polynesians, so we're not talking necessarily about Māori today, but their ancestors, the ancestors of uh, Samoans, of Rarotongans, all of the people of the Pacific, their ancestors, our ancestors used things like birds primarily was a big indicator. So if we imagine the Polynesian Triangle, you've got uh, Hawaii in one corner, Easter Islands in another corner, and then New Zealand right at the bottom, that big triangle forms the outline of Polynesia. And what we know is that from Asia on one side of the Pacific Ocean and Central America on the other part, there were over 20 million birds, a huge number of birds every year that migrated south down to New Zealand to nest. And what you could be able to tell from that is if you knew a bird would fly for about a day most and then come home, you'd know that it means it's nearby land. If you know that it flies further away and then comes back at a relatively later period, you'd know that there must be some sort of lands there for it to go to. And so you could use that idea to hop across islands. You'd also look for things like clouds. So one thing I've been, I was lucky enough to go to Tahiti last year to compete at the World Wakama Championship. Um, and one thing that struck me is their clouds stuck around the mountains. So for those of us that have been to a Polynesian islands, we know that it is circular and usually has a big mountain in the middle. 
there is a certain type of cloud that forms around that mountain and that stays around that mountain. Um, and so what we knew is that when people saw those kinds of clouds, it was an indicator of land. And then as you start getting closer, you start to see things like changing fish and you start to see other kinds of birds that um, arrive. So there's a whole heap of signs that um, can tell you how close you are to land. And the idea is that instead of looking for this tiny little island in the Pacific, you look for all of these big telltale signs and then you can realise that actually there's a huge range of islands that you can see. Big long answer, mm, but, but very important question. Exactly, <laughs> and, and it must have been quite frightening embarking on those journeys in the first place, not knowing exactly how far you needed to go or, or what kind of weather even that you were going yeah. to encounter because you're travelling such a large distance. So you'd have to be pretty confident about your survival skills. But like going bush in the back country of Aotearoa, you've got to know what you're doing, otherwise you could end up in a world of trouble. <laughs> but uh, just as well, they were great navigators. And that brings us to question two now from Ponsonby Primary School, please. So that's a great question. We know that there are, oh, this might be a political subject. Some people say there are seven, some people say there are nine Matsudiki stars. We know that the closest one at the moment is Urudangi, or I think the um, English equivalent name is Meropi. I'm not too sure if that's how you pronounce it. I should learn I'm these things. Not sure <laughs> but we know that it's 380 light years away from New Zealand, uh, from, from Earth, not New Zealand, from Earth. Um, and we know, just to give you an idea of that number, that's 3.7. 0293 times 10 to the power of 15. So if you add 15 zeros after that really long number, it gets to about that long. I couldn't put it into my iPhone. That's how long it was. Um, and that's how far away. Um, oh, that's sorry. That's in, that's light years. When you go to kilometers, it's about, yeah, it's a ridiculously long number. <laughs> a gajillion. I don't know if that's a technical term, but... <laughs> Mind-bogglingly yeah. far away. Um, if you have a read of my diary from yesterday, um, I mentioned how long it might take you to get to the Masariki Star Cluster if you were to drive at 100 kilometres <laughs> per hour. <laughs> it's a really long time. So check out that diary to find out that number. We are talking about vast distances, but... But Matariki is um, one of the closest star clusters to Earth. Yeah, I think so. And so it's quite cool when you think about that. <laughs> mm, indeed. And that's, of course, why we can see it. Uh, question now, number three from Arahoi School, please. When people were navigating, what troubles did they have? Mm, good point. Mm -hmm. So that question, we kind of alluded to it earlier, when you're going out navigating, you don't necessarily know where you're going. You know there's going to be a huge amount of trouble that you might encounter. And so we know generally when you're going out on the water, be it on a wakama, be it on a yacht or a sailboat, we know there are um, some things like weather, which is a really um, huge factor in whether you should actually be out on the water. So storms were a really big consideration. And sometimes when you're voyaging and you don't have the ability to check the weather because uh, Met, Met Service hasn't been invented yet, um, you know, you might have to be prepared. Um, another thing that you need to be uh, you need to be conscious of is that sometimes actually the sun can be an issue. So 
using stars to navigate when you know where you're going is really great until the sun rises and then you can't see the stars anymore. So to an extent, the sun is a bit of, uh, causes a bit of trouble. Um, but then as well, when you're talking about voyaging, we know that it could take up to 30 days, if not longer, um, out on the open ocean. And so when you're thinking about 30 days worth of food, I know I eat a fair amount of food. So you have to think about things like how much food can you take with you? Um, how much water, more importantly, can you take with you as well? And so the, idea is that a person needs 1.6 litres of water a day at minimum to survive healthily. Um, they can get away with 500 mils for roughly quarter of a cup, but then bad things start to happen. So you need to think about how you're going to keep yourself hydrated. And we know that we can't drink salt water and it only rains at certain times. So they had to think about how can you provision a trip? How can you make sure that you've got all of the tools necessary? Um, and then, of course, you know, if you do encounter some bad weather, you have to think about how you're going to repair your ship because in the middle of the um, Pacific Ocean, a small little sandy desert island doesn't have the great big trees that you need to repair your canoe or the great big um, leaves needed to um, repair the sails. So when you think about it in that context, people had to be really prepared for these sorts of things. Um, and then again, question number one from Arokoi School, if navigators had to navigate all the time, how did they sleep? Well, we know that's a huge issue, sleep. I get really cranky if I'm tired, and then I get really hangry if I'm hungry. <laughs> so these are the sorts of things that people, the sorts of troubles that people had to encounter. Yeah, and it's really interesting to think about because I've done a, a few trips in the backcountry and, and longer trips and that's on land and I find it hard enough to plan food yeah. and, and getting water and that sort of thing. I have great admiration for these people that go to sea where they, they don't even have those resources at hand and they've got to organise it all beforehand. Amazing. Mm. Mm. And now we're up to question, where are we? Question three. I think from Ponsonby Primary School. Does a matriki used for navigation? Of course they were. So as we said before, some of the brightest stars and some of the closest stars to Earth are within the Matsudiki constellation. We know that Matsudiki itself uh, was one of those that um, was utilised. And I'm just trying to find my list. So. For those of us that are Māori, um, we might be descended from an iwi called Ngāti Kahungunu. And for those of us that are descended, or some of us might be from uh, the Tauranga Moana region as well, that were descendants of uh, that whose ancestors arrived on the Takitimu Waka. And we know that Takitimu arrived from, uh, departed from Rarotonga. Um, our whanaunga, our relations in Rarotonga have stories of uh, this waka called Takitimu departing. And what we know is that they in a similar way to uh, reciting whakapapa or genealogy, remembered the star names that they needed to follow to arrive safely in New Zealand. Um, and so from that, we know that Matsudaki was used in, um, in, as a part of voyaging. We also know that when they departed, um, it made a huge, uh, yeah, the time of departure was a huge consideration. And so then using stars like our closest star system to star cluster to um, Earth would have been a really important thing to think about. So yeah, Matariki was used in navigation. So Matt, Matariki appears in midwinter. Yep. So was it used at that time of the year for navigation or at other times? At the start of, um, so we know that at the start of certain voyages. Okay. 
stars would have been used at the onset. And then as they arrived closer to New Zealand, other stars uh, would have become um, the leading uh, points, for the leading compass points. Excellent. And now question number four from Arahoi School, please. How were the rising and setting points of the stars and planets used as signposts? So I love this question because, again, I love the movie Moana and it makes it really easy explaining it to people how this thing works because we know that Maui and Moana went like this. We did this before. Another way that they did it is if you have three fingers over the horizon from the star to the horizon proper, that would tell you how long you have to navigate. And so what would happen is if you're standing on your canoe, we remember what Moana's canoe looks like. It has two hulls, two um uh, yeah, two hulls to sit on. And then on top of the hull, there would have been uh, where Moana was steering. Um, on some of the larger ones, they have what's called a star compass. And so what you do with the star compass is you align different points on that compass to the prow of your ship, to the front of your ship, and then you align it to the horizon. And what that will tell you is if you know the line of stars needed to travel from Rarotonga to New Zealand, as the Takitimu canoe did so many years ago, you'd know that you'd need to um, travel to this point at such and such time. And then when you hit that star, once it had set over the horizon, you then change to the next star, realign it with your canoe, and then use that as your heading for a period of time until, uh, again, that star set. And you'd work through that list of things like that. So, yeah, it's quite cool. It is. <laughs> Fantastic amount of knowledge about the ninth sky. Mm. And now question four from Ponsonby Primary School, please. Why do the Matariki stars only appear in midwinter? And again, this kind of goes back to that first question, do the stars go away? It depends on um, where the Earth's axis is. That's a really complicated sort of thing, and I'm not expecting you fools to know what the Earth's axis is. But if, again, if we go back to the idea of the sun in the middle here and the Earth rotating around it and the Earth's rotation pattern changing, what will happen is that at midwinter, that's when we will definitely see those stars. Um, that means that at midwinter, that's the best vantage point for us to see those stars. So they're there, but they're just hiding most of the other times. <laughs> yeah, so if you get a globe in your classroom, um, and you might see that it's sitting on a little hoop, so that it's on an angle, so the north and south poles aren't straight up and down. Mm -hmm. You're on a bit of an angle. I think it's 23 degrees approximately. So that angle's what gives us our seasons so we're not always getting the same amount of sunlight each each day or throughout the year and that means that we're seeing different um, parts of the night sky as well in different seasons and I understand Matt that Matariki is called different things at different times of the year. Yeah it's quite cool so it would change as, it, um, as the seasons come through unfortunately I've forgotten those names. <laughs> I think maybe at the planetarium we might find out a bit more about that because it's really interesting because some people say no Matariki wasn't used for navigation um, but it depends on whether you're calling it Matariki or you're calling it something else mm. when it's in the, the summer um, sky because it only sets I think around late May so we lose it in, in May and then we get it back again in June so it's not like when it rises in midwinter that that's the first time that we've seen it all year so it gets a little bit confusing and if you go out and see your night sky often throughout the seasons you'll get a much better idea of how it changes over time 
Fantastic question to end Ponsonby Primary School's questions. And we've just got one more from Arahoi School, please. <laughs> there we go, I can see you now. <laughs> How are the sun and the waves used to navigation? So cool question. So at night we know that we use the stars to navigate and you can list those stars off as I said before and if you follow them to the setting points that would tell you where you're going. With the sun that is kind of similar at sunrise or at sunset you can tell uh, I'm heading in a certain direction. So we know that in New Zealand the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. If you know that then you can say okay if I need to head east I'll just keep on heading towards the sunrise and then if I'm if I uh, throughout the rest of the day, you use the waves to help navigate. So as I said earlier, the waves of uh, in the ocean, the swell of the ocean, will always stay in the same direction unless there is something like land or a big storm um, to uh, throw that pattern off. Um, but even then, sailors would know what the swell is of the ocean. So there's swell versus waves. Those are two really big differences there. Um, swell is the general flow of the ocean. It's rebounding from... Uh, land and that will always stay in one way and then you've got things like uh, cresting waves that come over the top that's created by wind. Um, Maori and Polynesians had, had recognised that there were two different kinds of um, waves and so they'd be able to use uh, the waves if once the sun had got to a certain point in the sky so once it had left this sort of um, time bracket here once it was up over here it became a bit unreliable and so they went okay the waves are heading in this direction this is how we're going to um, we're going to stay on the same um, trajectory the same head in the same direction from um, how the waves are going and then once the sun had come all the way back towards its set in the west you know okay cool this is I need to be heading in the opposite direction to find east and it's really interesting if you have a, a bit of a research about maritime navigation through the ages, there's some really cool knowledge out there about ocean currents and, and wind directions and to the point where people understood that they couldn't necessarily get to a place in a straight line. They might have to go way out in the direction of the current or the wind and then come back again because that was much easier in terms of harnessing that, the natural energy of the wind or the currents before that they could change direction or go back to where they wanted to go. So really yeah. interesting. And we know things like, so again, um, there's a part where Maui's telling Moana to put her hand in the water to feel the temperature change of the water. And we know he did something really silly when she did that. Um, but we know actually that certain is some of the voyages, some of the navigators that stayed on the ocean for a long period of time, they would um, start to, um, blend with the ocean so we knew that their breathing was in time with the swell we knew that they would be able to tell really subtle temperature changes which would indicate that the land is getting more shallow or that the, um, they'd be able to also tell the how salty the water is to tell you that you're in a different kind of water um, all of these different things indicate um, how far away you are and your relate your proximity to land um, so it's really cool they'd even be able to tell you know what kind of fish would you have? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah and, and being that connected to the natural environment um, means that you can operate a whole lot more successfully. You might want to discuss a bit more with your classmates. Well, well done, Arahoi School and Ponsonby Primary School. Great quality questions this morning. Fantastic to get those, and hopefully, we've answered those. And Matt, brilliant answers. Thank you very much. Sure.
And now we've got time for some extra questions. So if you pop down to the bottom of your screen, you'll see it's orange on my screen, a, a chat bubble. If you click on that, <coughs> it'll bring up the chat pod. So we've got a few minutes to answer some extra questions. And um, you can type those in as we go. Shelley, so, there's one there from earlier. So from yeah. Melissa's school, what were the waka like that they explored on? What did they take with them when they voyaged for exploration? So we've partly covered it, but there's more, I'm sure. Yep. So in terms of the waka, we know um, we call them waka haurua, um, double hull canoes. Um, these were uh, found throughout Polynesia now as a result of, in the 1970s, there was a huge movement to reclaim this um, part of our culture. Um, and along with it, the, the um, knowledge of the stars and the sky. Um, we know that these canoe were designed quite uniquely. When we think of a ship in, the, in you know, the British terms, you've got the hull of the ship and then the triangular um, sails. In Polynesia, uh, the triangular sails were actually upside down. Um, what this means is that their range of sail, their range of um, their ability to sail into the wind is probably the best way to say it, is hugely increased. Um, the typical um, voyaging ships used by the likes of Captain Cook didn't have this great capacity to follow, uh, to uh, sail into the wind. So that's a little bit about the design of it. We also know that um, instead of having a rigid uh, rudder that would always be in the same place, Polynesians used um, big hoi, big paddles, uh, to steer the canoes. Um, these hoi are still used nowadays. Um, we have them on our waka in, here in New Zealand, and they're found throughout, uh, again, Polynesia, um, on other various forms of canoes. Um, and this is because, aside from just using uh, the winds and the current to um, sail, we'd also use things like the surf. Um, so I know a few of my friends on some of the bigger voyaging canoes now, they've been surfing down some really big waves. Probably not the healthiest thing from a health and, safe health and safety perspective, but sounds like a damn go good load of fun. <laughs> Does indeed. <laughs> Kia ora, Matt. And Barry, I'll let you read out questions because they're, they're coming in. Uh, yep, just a sec. Um, just everybody, just limit yourself to questions in there, please, because it's really hard to find them if there's a lot of rubbish in there. Okay. Um, from Lee Man, did they use any trigonometry in their navigation? Oh, good question. <laughs> Somebody's obviously been challenging themselves with trigonometry and maths. I think and the last time I heard trigonometry, I was probably closer to your guys' age than I am now. <laughs> um, trigonometry. Whew. Christ, this is going back definitely a few years. So we know that some of the uh, instruments used by Europeans to navigate, such as um, things like the sextant, instead of using um, the tool which would measure the distance between the stars and the horizon and using a, you know, measuring the distance and using maths to calculate it, we knew that you know, three fingers roughly equaled, let's say, an hour and a half. And instead of using um, trigonometry to calculate where you were, that have a rough idea of it because simply of their ability to look at the stars. I can see your mic. A little bit less um, mass space, I guess, would be one way to put it, but it came to the same. 
It's really helpful, guys, if you remain muted because otherwise we can't we can't hear what's going on. Thank you. That makes a big difference. It's really good. So yeah, you might have tried the the trigonometry exercise on the Learns website. So finding out if you've got two measurements, you can find a third if you create a triangle. So if you um, want to have a go at that activity, um, by all means do. I think there's some answers in the resources section for teachers too. So you can give that a go and, and see what we're talking about. Okay, any other questions there? Yes, from Room 7 at St Mary's, why are there stories with seven stars and some with nine stars in Matariki? Mm, good point. That is a really good question. Probably one that I'm not the best to answer it, to be honest. Um, what we know is that across Polynesia, different stars had different importance to different people. And as we've learned more and more about the stars in this modern day, uh, as we've reclaimed this knowledge is probably the best way to say it, we're finding out that actually more and more the different kinds of things available, the different stars that were used, we're still finding out about these sorts of things. And so as we start to delve into more depth in this knowledge, um, it'll be something that probably will always um, ask questions about, you know, are these the bright stars that we should be looking at? What about these kinds of other stars? It's a really good question. Mm, I guess it comes down to if you live in a different place, you get a different view yeah. of the world, yeah. and it might be that you can um, see nine stars or you've heard from your yeah. ancestors that there's nine stars, whereas other places you might have heard that there were seven, seven, and it just yeah. depends on what your iwi hapu have, have, mm. have taught you from the past, and I know that in Japan, for example, they refer to Masarihi as Subaru, which is kind of cool because now there's a car called Subaru. So <laughs> throughout the world, different different views of the world and different mm. names and different um, beliefs about things. So mm. it's connecting with what um, your place is about and your knowledge and your family and whānau and, and learning about your own history and what you can take from that. Actually, next time you see a Subaru, that's got little stars in its icon. So it's probably the view from the northern hemisphere, whereas that one there, we uh, mistakenly had it around the wrong way. But that's the view of Matariki from the southern hemisphere. Yeah. Cool. Um, from Torbay School, Room 25, why does the date we celebrate Matariki change? <laughs> And again, that goes back to the question of um, when does Matariki reappear in the skies? And it comes back to um, how long, um, uh, it comes back to the different seasons and the Earth's rotation. So if we look at our globe, as Shelley was saying earlier, um, that different rotation each year would change uh, roughly when uh, the stars appear in our sky. And it's the same way when we have a full moon or a quarter moon or a, when the sun's in a, um, yeah, different things like that. Um, those things impact um, at which point we do get to see Matariki. And it depends, again, which part of, as we were saying, which part of um, Polynesia you're standing in as well. If you're standing closer to the equator, that will change where different stars arrive. Um, and so, again, that impacts, yeah, when we would start to celebrate or start to acknowledge um, the, the rising of Matariki. Mm, and in and, and Aotearoa, we follow a calendar that's like 365.25 days in a year. I don't know 
exactly why to do with rotation and all that sort of stuff. But it makes more sense in a lot of ways to have a lunar calendar, yeah. which is what Māori had and based on the moon and the cycle of the moon. <coughs> so a different calendar, so a different time of the year, um, different dates. So you can do a bit more research about the Maramataka and find out about that. And we've probably got time for a couple more questions. Um, yes, one from Corey. Why is it so important to know how Māori navigated? Good question. That is a really good question. And for us, I guess, Definitely for Māori, there was an idea that was first floated. This is a debate that stems back to the 1800s and even further actually to the 1700s of how Polynesians um, settled the largest ocean in the world. Um, and the idea, the first idea previously thought of was that it was an accident, that somehow these people were blown out into the world's largest ocean and then again, kept on getting blown to more and more of uh, the various islands across the place. Um, and then one of the other ideas is that we came from South America, so from Peru. That's another idea that's been thrown out there because of the way the winds work. So if we look at the winds on a the map, there are, um, the wind that is closest to New Zealand, it's largely one um, that blows from South America across to New Zealand. So the idea was that we didn't actually come from um, Polynesia, we weren't Polynesian, we're actually South Americans. And this is backed up, this idea was backed up because South Americans have kumara, so we all know the New Zealand kumara, the sweet potato, they've got a similar sort of plant over there as well, and so they thought, well, these two people across this massive ocean have the same plant, they must be from the same place, and the wind blows this way. But what we know now after um, this research is that actually... Um, it was a conscious decision to voyage out from initially Southeast Asia down into Melanesia and Micronesia and then across into Polynesia. And then eventually the last three places on the planet that we see who were Hawaii, Upper Nui, and Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, and so what we know from that is that it actually wasn't an accident. It was a really intentional idea that we go out there, we explore this vast expanse of ocean and we find out what actually was there. Awesome question. For us, it's about, I guess, reclaiming um, that knowledge and making sure that when we are acknowledged, we are acknowledged as some of the best seafaring people in the, on the planet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Celebrating your history. Um, Masariki, I can see um, some, a webcam there named Masariki. Please mute your microphone. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Lots of interference coming from that one. Thank you. That makes a big difference. Yeah, knowing about your history and celebrating that, it, it helps to know who you are and, and move on and, and make the most mm. of your future as well. Really good question. Any more questions this morning? We've only got a couple more minutes. Um, yes, was the moon from an educator from Lucy at Teruringa School, was the moon used for navigation? The moon, yeah, definitely. So we know that the place of the moon and the setting and the rising again as the sun works um, was hugely important. We know that, um, yeah, this also dictated when it was probably good to go, um, actually go out and voyage. Um, the moon, if we go back to the Maramataka, there are different phases and different names for those phases. And the way the moon interacts with the ocean, so we know it impacts the tides, we know it impacts um, 
the swells and these sorts of things. We know it has a huge impact on the seasonality of the, the, the environmental conditions of the ocean. So when we think about it in that context, the moon not only is a guiding star compass in the same way that the stars would have been, but we also know that it would have been um, huge consideration uh, for the moon and its phases would have been undertaken prior to actually going out and exploring uh, the ocean. Fantastic. Kia ora, Matt. Um, one last question, please. Yep, from uh, Taylor Bayliss. Which is the first star out of the nine, or seven, to appear in the sky? And I wonder if that's the same for the north and the southern hemispheres. That is a good question, and one that I'm not 100% sure of in the answer to. That's a no, really good I, question. I, I don't know. <laughs> That'd be something that you could probably do some research about. Um, yeah. Might be able to find out at the planetarium today yeah. and let us know tomorrow in tomorrow's web conference. The yep. astronomers will know. <laughs> yes, indeed. And if anyone else can find out before then, they can help us out and join us again tomorrow to tell us the answer. Well, fantastic effort from everybody this morning. Great listening skills and some really interesting questions. So thank you for your participation this morning. I know we haven't answered all the questions, um, but you can join us again at 9.15 tomorrow to ask more questions. And of course, you can do your own research as well. So thank you very much for joining us. And kia ora, Matt. Kia ora. Really interesting. And you can also access this recording, which will be on the website later on today. In the meantime, you can now all unmute your microphone and say big goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.